Well, if we're going to make sense of the violence in this passage, and specifically the two things, the uh, Israelite commanders putting their feet on the necks of the conquered kings and the impaling of those same kings on poles, we're going to need to think about what's going on in Joshua chapter uh, 10 in accordance with how Joshua is thinking about what he's doing. You'll remember that we said the most important command in the book of Joshua is the one that the Lord gave to Joshua that we repeat to ourselves every week. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. There's no way to make sense of what's going on in the book of Joshua without understanding the book of the law that Joshua himself is meditating on day and night so that he might obey it. You see, for us, the book of the law that we're supposed to obey is the whole Bible. For Joshua, all he has are the first five books of the Bible. That's the book of the law that God means for him. And specifically among those first five books, the book of Deuteronomy, which contains instructions, specific instructions, about how Joshua and the Israelites are supposed to act in relation to taking possession of the land, we need to understand what it is that God is saying to them because these are the things that Joshua is reading that make sense of what's going on in this passage. So take your Bible, which is probably open to Joshua 10, and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9, it's the book right before Joshua. It's page 147. Deuteronomy chapter 9, this, these are the passages that Joshua is reading every day and every night. This is what he's meditating on, and this will help make sense, hopefully, of what's going on in Joshua chapter 10. Deuteronomy 9, I begin reading in verse 1. Hear, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan and go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses is speaking of a yet future event which is present in Joshua 10. Moses is looking forward to what we're currently reading about in the book of Joshua. And he says, look, when you go into that land, where they now are in Joshua 10, you're going to come up against some giants, some enemies that seem way too strong for you. Anakites or Amorites or Canaanites. And the idea is, is Moses wants Joshua to know, look, the Lord will be fighting for you. The Lord will fight alongside of you and he will subdue them meaning he will bring them, these enemies, into submission under the Israelites. Now, in the ancient Near East, one of the very common ways that the culture, not just Israelite culture, but the surrounding culture as well, demonstrated submission was that the conquering king would put his foot on the neck or the head of the one who's conquered. 
And so Joshua is simply participating in the same cultural exercise that anyone might do, but the symbolism is that these people have been brought into submission. He brings the kings forward. They are laid on the ground. The commanders put their feet on their necks. And this is a sign, a culturally accepted sign, that these people have been beaten by the Israelites. But there's much more going on here than just what the culture would have understood. <clears throat> you see, this language or this idea of putting your enemies under your feet or putting your feet on the necks of your enemies... This shows up throughout the Bible, but every single time it appears, it is always God who is putting the enemies under their feet. For example, 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 3. This is Solomon speaking of his father David. He says, you know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God, until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. Yes, David is the one who fought the battles, but God is the one who brought those enemies in subjection under David. God is the one who gave David the victory. Same thing, Malachi chapter 4, verse 3. God says, then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Again, it's God who brings the enemies into submission under their feet. Likewise, Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the idea is if you look at all the instances in the Bible, I just gave you a few, every single time, it is the Lord who brings the enemies into submission. And so what Joshua is doing in Joshua chapter 10 is he's not gloating over these five beaten kings. What he's doing is he is reminding himself and the children of Israel that God has been faithful to his promise, that God is the one who has brought them into submission. These are a people who are too strong for Joshua. These are five kings who are giants, whose abilities are far beyond anything that Joshua and the Israelites could handle on their own. But Joshua, in obedience to Deuteronomy 9, has reminded the people that God is the one who gave them the victory. That's why the last little detail of the story in Joshua 10 is that there is an altar of rocks in front of the cave, acknowledging in an act of worship that God is the one who brought them the victory. Joshua brings these kings forward and puts their feet on their necks, not because he's trying to gloat, but because he's acknowledging it was God and God alone who did this thing. You say, okay, <clears throat> but why kill him? <laughs> like, that seems a bit harsh. And worse yet, why impale them on poles and hang them up for everybody to see? Can't you just put your feet on your neck, make the point, and let them go? Why this gruesome act? Well, keep reading in Deuteronomy chapter 9. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. 
No. It is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Question. Is it because of Israel's righteousness that they're going to get this land? No. Is that not clear? Does not God say that over and over again? Look, I'm not giving you this land because you earned it. I'm taking this land from them because of their wickedness. See, the problem is if you read the book of Joshua from a civil rights point of view, it won't make any sense. It looks like God likes one group of people over another group of people and God removed one group of people from their land and put another group of people in their place. That doesn't seem to make sense from a civil rights point of view. That's because we're not supposed to read Joshua from a civil rights point of view. We're supposed to read it from a wickedness and sin point of view. God is very, very clear, is he not? That what's going on in the land of Canaan is absolute vile wickedness. Yes, God has put up with it for 430 some years, but it has reached the point where their wickedness is such an offense to God that God has got to remove what's going on. And Israel is simply the vehicle by which God is bringing about the punishment that sin deserves. It's not that Israel's a better people. They're stiff-necked as well. The point is, of Joshua chapter 10, is that sin leads to death. That the activities that are going on in the land of Canaan, this is not an innocent people minding their own business who God decides to pick on. This is a people who time and again have chosen the most vile and wicked behavior in an affront to God. And despite God's patience for hundreds of years, they refuse to repent. Not only that, they were given a chance to have peace with God. And they rejected it. You say, well, when did that happen? Remember why exactly this battle in Joshua 10 was taking place. These five Amorite kings have turned on one of their own, the city of Gibeon. Why? Because Gibeon has made peace with God and with Israel. That means these five kings know that peace is possible. They know it's available. Now you and I know the Gibeonites lied, but they still got in. As far as these five kings know, Gibeon is now a part of Israel, and when they attack Gibeon, Israel responds because they've been incorporated into the people of God, which means that every one of those kings knows it's possible and chooses to reject it. The point of Joshua chapter 10 is that sin leads to death. That to reject God's offer of peace, to reject God. You know the great thing about the book of Joshua? 
Nobody in the book of Joshua who wants peace with God is ever refused. Rahab the prostitute welcomed in with open arms the entire city of Gibeon. These wicked people who are doing the things that Deuteronomy 9, hey, they want welcome. Nobody is turned away. But the point of Joshua 10 is, is that through the rejection of God's offer of peace, through their own wicked behavior, they have stored up for themselves wrath. And God has chosen the children of Israel to be the agents to deliver that wrath. This is why Joshua impales them on poles and hangs them up. It's because he's obeying another portion of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21, which says, If someone guilty of a capital offense, meaning someone who has sinned against God, who's done vile and wicked things, if that person is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it the same day. Because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. Why does Joshua impale them on poles and hang them up for one evening only? This is not him gloating over his enemies. This is not him as some sort of primitive who's engaging in some barbaric activity. This is Joshua making a very clear pronouncement. These men are cursed because of their sin. They're on that pole demonstrating their death didn't happen simply because two countries went to war with each other. Their death happened because they are cursed by God because of their sin. They are cursed by God because they've rejected his offer of peace. Listen, the hanging on poles is a very clear sign. Because of their sin, they've been cursed. Because of that curse, they've experienced death. Now you say, okay, that's what that means. But what about a merciful God? What about a loving God? What about a God who continues to be patient? What about a God, yes, I know it's been 430 years, but what about a God who comes in and offers rescue and redemption and salvation? Where's that God on display in Joshua chapter 10? Well, in order to see that aspect of God on display, you have to understand how Joshua 10 fits into the larger story that God is telling. See, Joshua 10 is not a story in and of itself. It's not a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's simply a piece of a larger story that God is telling. And to understand God as a merciful God, which he is, and a compassionate God, which he is, you have to understand Joshua 10 within the larger context of the story that God is telling. It's a story that began in the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, and as a result of their wickedness, just like those Amorite kings, as a result of their wickedness, they experienced the cursing of God for their sin, which led to death. But in the midst of that curse, specifically the curse that was given to Satan, who led them astray, God gave a prophecy. Genesis 3, verse 15, God says, And I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. 
and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Do you see the language of their enemies under their feet? The original prophecy here is God is saying to Satan, sin and death. I will bring you into submission and subjection. I will conquer you so that you do not, so that you are not victorious over this world. But notice what the prophecy is. It's not that the offspring of the women, woman that they will crush his head. As if somehow it means humanity in general. It's a singular pronoun. He, one person who is born of a woman, will crush the head of Satan, sin and death, and bring all of evil and wickedness under submission to God. And we're told that when the time was right, God sent his son Jesus, born of a woman, born as one of us, to set us free from sin and from death, to bring all of life that is in rebellion against God into submission, to bring that which is cursed to a place of being blessed. How did Jesus do that? How did God accomplish that? Galatians 3 tells us, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Remember, you and I, every human being on earth, is required to do all the things that God has said in his book. The problem is, is every single human being, you and I included, have failed in some way to do that which God asked us to do, and the result of that wickedness, that disobedience, that sin, is cursing. Cursed is everyone who fails to obey God totally and completely. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ rescued us from the curse of the law. Christ rescued us from the fate that befell the Amorite kings who were cursed for their disobedience. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. That's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 21. We just read it. He redeemed us in order that instead of a curse, we might receive the blessing given to Abraham, that it might come to you and I through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. God in his mercy not only caused his son to be born of a woman to come to rescue us, he chose to allow that same son to be crucified on a wooden pole. Why? So that when he was lifted up on that pole, it would be a sign to all that he was cursed by God. That our sin, our disobedience, our wickedness, which required that we be cursed by God, crucified, impaled, hung on a pole, cursed by God, that instead of giving that to us, God chose to let Jesus pay that for us. He became cursed cursed so that we could be set free, 
so that we don't have to be cursed anymore, so that whatever our wickedness, whatever our rejection, whatever our disobedience, it's taken from us and given to Jesus. Listen, you're not supposed to read Joshua 10 without reading in mind that God has a bigger plan. Look, it's not an accident. Remember what happens after those five kings are impaled on poles? They stay there for one evening. You can't spend the night on the pole. Deuteronomy 21 is very clear. Then what happens? They're taken down from the pole, thrown into a cave, and a large pile of rocks are put over the opening of the cave. Listen, this is not an accident. On Good Friday, Jesus does not remain the night on the cross because Deuteronomy demands that he be taken down. How does Rome know that? They don't, but God's in charge. And so he has him taken down from that pole that evening, thrown into a cave, and a large rock is rolled in front of the opening of the cave. But the difference is, those five Amorite kings... They were in their burial cave because of their own sin. They were there because of their own wickedness. They were there because of their rejection of God. Jesus was in his cave because of his obedience, because of his purity, because of his holiness, because he was willing to love us enough to come and to bear the penalty for our sin. Therefore, God said, that body that was laid in that cave, God refused to abandon him to death. Instead, he raised him to life. And on that day, he said of him the words of David in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord, meaning the Father, said to my Lord, meaning Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Until I bring about the promise of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Because Jesus has paid the price for my sin and for your sin and for all the sins in the whole world. God raised him from the dead, ascended into heaven and said, sit next to me until I bring all things, all wickedness, all evil into subjection under your feet. Listen, it's okay to be bothered by the brutality in Joshua. It's okay to be bothered by the gruesome nature of what's going on. But please don't mistake where that brutality came from. This is not the sign of a brutal, capricious God. This is not the sign of a primitive, unenlightened people who are barbaric in their ways. This is a sign that sin leads to death. There is brutality, there is gross violence, but it comes because of sin. Listen, do you need a better example of this than what happened in France this weekend? Is that not a sign of the senseless nature of murder, of death, of suicide? There is no hope that direction. There is no life that direction. We left to ourselves, that's where we end up. That's what we end up doing to one another. The brutality in Joshua is a sign, a sign that sin leads to death. That those who are experiencing oppression, those who are being abused, those who are the victims of all of this stuff, they need rescue. We need rescue. And so God refused to abandon us to the brutality of our own sin. Instead, he chose for his son to become one of us to experience the ultimate form of that brutality so that he might rescue us from it. Listen, it's pie in the sky to think you can just wish away sin and evil in this world. 
There is darkness in this world that simply cannot be explained. You can't educate it away. You can't wish it away. You can't pass laws against it. There is a darkness and there is an evil that grabs hold of people and perverts their actions and brings death and destruction. But God is refusing to turn his back. Instead, he is saying, through Jesus, I am making available to you life. Why choose cursing? Why choose death? Why choose hopelessness? Choose life. And so the choice you and I face is the same choice that those five Amorite kings face. Peace with God is possible. Peace with God is possible. No Gibeonite king was impaled on a pole. Peace with God is possible because of Jesus. What does that look like? What does it look like for someone to embrace this offer of peace through Jesus? Well, God's provided Alex and Marley to come and share their story so you can see a real-life testimony of how God offers peace to all who will accept. Alex, Marley, come and share. Good morning, everyone. All right. I grew up in a family which only attended Catholic Church on Christmas and Easter. During these times and throughout my childhood, I never really learned anything about God. I just thought that he was a person who lived in the sky and provided with me with my milk and cookies every night. Because I never really learned about him, God was never really important to me. My parents divorced when I was two or three, and even at that young age, I was devastated. My brother and I seemed to be put in the middle of their arguments, making matters worse. Everything they argued about seemed as if it stemmed from something that I did or was my fault. This guilt weighed on me for years. I was never popular in school and was picked on and made fun of a lot. So from a young age, I strived to fit in and become a people pleaser. I was introdu introduced to drugs and alcohol my junior year of high school. <clears throat> I felt that they gave me, my life, a sense of meaning and belonging that I was longing for. I met Marley then, and she became my girlfriend. Three years later, I started becoming very depressed and angry, and the only time I felt happy was holding on to my best friend Jack Daniels and using my drug of choice. On May 15, 2015, after spending time at a bar catching up with my best friend from high school, I was dropped back off at my apartment where I blacked out. At some point, I woke up and got into my car and took off down the street. I made it about a half, made it about a mile away from my apartment where I drifted off the road and struck a telephone pole. I was asleep the whole time until the airbag went off and hit me in the face. I spent the rest of my night in jail and was charged with operating while visually impaired. I hit a low point in my depression. I didn't feel as if I fit in. It seemed as if I was the cause of a lot of my parents' arguments, and I kept hurting all of the ones that I loved. I daily thought I would be better off dead and tried to drink myself to death, hoping not to wake up, but I always woke up. I ended up in a psychiatric hospital where I spent the longest five days of my life. Anger raged inside me during this time and stayed with me. I was very happy to be released and was able to stay away from drugs and alcohol for a while, and I moved in with Marley and her mother. But my depression never really left me. 
I just got better at hiding it. I started drinking and using drugs again, but I wasn't very good at hiding that. Marley had finally had enough of my drinking and my drug use and called my mom to come pick me up so that she didn't have to deal with it anymore. I had been able to survive everything else to that point, but I couldn't accept or live with the rejection from the one person who I cared the most about. I finally couldn't escape reality, and it hit my lowest point. The next day, I had planned to be my last day on Earth. I didn't know how, but I planned on not waking up the following day. Little to my knowledge, my lowest day was going to turn into the best day of my life. My mom, who had actually always been by my side, called me and told me that she had some people she wanted me to meet that afternoon. I was angry because I just wanted to to die. I didn't want to meet any more people. I ended up meeting Jim and Tammy Stortz at Burger King that afternoon. Jim and I sat at a sticky table where he explained the gospel to me and showed me that I, what I had been missing out on. He explained to me his story and what God has done for him and his wife. Jim read to me Romans 10.9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. <laughs> After he read that, I was overwhelmed with emotion. And at that sticky Burger King table, I confessed with my mouth that Jesus was my Lord, believing that God raised him from the dead so all of my sins would be washed away. After that moment, I felt happy again. I had a real sense of meaning and belonging. I could be the person God wanted me to be and not who everybody else wanted me to be. And I actually felt hope for the first time. Since that day in July, God changed my life drastically. I can focus on God's truth and his goodness and tune out all of the sin. God has restored my family relationships. I have a better relationship with my dad and my brother, and I have an amazing relationship with my mom, who I love dearly. Marley's parents have seen a real change in me, and we now have a better relationship as well. I thank Marley's mom for helping me through all of my cravings and giving me resources to look beyond the alcohol. Two weeks after God saved me, he granted me the answer to my most important prayer requests. Marley got to meet Jim and Tammy and heard the gospel. A couple of days later, she was welcomed into God's everlasting love and family too. With God's leading on her birthday in September, I got down on my knee and asked her to marry me. We <laughs> Thank you. We are now set to be married in September of 2017. Through all of this, Marley stuck with me, and she will be stuck with me for the rest of my life. God blessed me with a new job that allows me to attend church on Sundays and deliver me and delivered me from a job that was a large source of my depressions and a huge trigger for sin. It was difficult for me to let go of the old Alex there and move on. My story is something that I am very proud of, as difficult as it was to get through. However, I am able to use it to touch others with the gospel and show the show them how wonderful God is. I am in no way perfect, and I still sin here and there, but Jesus is my Savior. He changed me from a man who had a one-way ticket to hell to a Christian man who was able to worship him every day and help bring others to Christ. Thank you.